Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm glad you are here, ready to listen to Micah's episode. It's a great episode. I know you're going to love it. Before we get into it, really quickly, I wanted to make sure two things were clear from the episode. One, on July 24th, Micah is going to release a book of 30 solos that he edited, and he made sort of... uh, annotations, I guess, of his thoughts on what the solos are and the music and all that kind of stuff. It's a really cool resource. There's also reference recordings. The book is $36. If you check out and you use SPIT 2020, you'll get 10% off trumpet and trombone books. This is a really cool offer. I wanted to make sure that was clear because when I spoke about it in the episode, it was not as clear because I just misspoke. Sometimes that happens. The next thing I want to make sure is very clear is uh, July 27th will be the closing of the ability to sign up for Micah's fundamental course that he is going to do. And uh, it's how he thinks about fundamentals, the way he approaches it. So he's ready for his job. He's ready for playing and how he finds success in his career. So that's definitely going to be worth checking out. I will link both things in the show notes so you can check that out. All right, enough of me talking. Let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy this awesome interview with Michael Wilkinson. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, via Zoom, I am here with the principal trumpet of the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, Micah Wilkinson. Um, I was just telling him before the we turned the episode on that I had made a commitment uh, to do all of these longer-form interviews in person so that the... The voices would be, you know, these microphones and all this kind of stuff, yada, yada, yada. But the coronavirus does not care about my my commitments to myself. And so um, I'm really thankful for things like Zoom so that we can be looking at each other and still have what amounts to as normal of an interaction as we can while still doing this. And I'm thankful for his time. So first of all, Micah, I really appreciate you uh, reaching out and being willing to be on the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. I'm thrilled to be here with you and, um, you know, sharing a cup of coffee together. Yeah, as, as close as we can get. <laughs> uh, Mike actually lives in Pittsburgh, obviously, and I have family in Pittsburgh. So if the coronavirus itself had not ravaged, we would probably hopefully be doing this in person. But that's neither here nor there. Um, there's some actual stuff. This is exciting for me. There's some actual like stuff, Micah, beyond like the questions I was asked, I was going to ask him some actual stuff that he's hoping to talk about. It's like a first for me. Um, some stuff, some uh, some things that he's working on project wise that he is excited to share with all of you. Um, so we'll get to that later if that's fine. Just kind of give a general introduction to who you are. We obviously know you're in Pittsburgh, but if you want to talk about how long you've been there, kind of where you were before that, we can get into your education a little bit if you feel that's uh, relevant to the discussion, and uh, we'll go from there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I live in Pittsburgh with my wife and my two beautiful daughters, and um, I play principal trumpet here in the symphony. And let's see, I've been here going on almost three years now. And um, 
came from San Diego, where I had been playing principal bef- uh, for also, I think, two and a half years or so. Uh, but I've bounced around a bunch of orchestras. Uh, before that was Houston. Before that was the Oregon Symphony. I did a, a year as acting second in the San Francisco Symphony. I played third trumpet. was my first job in the Tucson Symphony. And I went to school at St. Olaf College in Minnesota and studied a bit in Germany with Tony Plogue in Freiburg and also uh, with David Hickman at ASU for a little while. Um, and I'm from Atlanta. Nice. So this is similar to me where... Not in terms of how many jobs <laughs> that you've won, but um, the bouncing around, right? I spent 18 years at home, and then I had four years in undergrad, two years in Chicago, um, one year at home, one year in Indianapolis, and now six years here. And when I first got here, the idea that I might be someplace for a long period of time was very weird and foreign to me. What's it like that Pittsburgh might be a final stop for you? I mean, there's obviously more that you could do career-wise, but it's also a place you could stay if you wanted to. So what's that feeling like to be able to possibly be there long-term? Um, it, it's really nice to be able to feel like you can put down roots. Uh, we, we bought our first house here. Um, and and have really uh, tried to um, connect and invest with our community here. And uh, we, of course, made connections everywhere we've lived, but we always just, I think, had this feeling that, like, uh, you know, we might not be here permanently. Um, I was still taking auditions, and so it's, um, I think it's something that we're still getting used to. We've been here just long enough that we're starting to feel like, oh, are we, are we about to move again? <laughs> we're just so used to moving, you know. Right. And um, so to, to really like put your feet up and just be comfortable and say, you know, we might be here for 30 years, that I can't wrap my head around that yet. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what do you feel are, um, let's just say between San Diego and Pittsburgh, your, your two most recent jobs, um, what do you feel are, um, I mean, I, I guess just differences. It could be, it could be like city, it could be like quality of life. It could be like workload with the symphony. Like, what do you feel like some differences are, um, and, and that are, are between your two positions and, um, kind of if there are things about Pittsburgh, because we we look at it from the outside and we say that must be just the best ever, right? And like every job is going to come with its trade-offs. Like we're up here and we're work, you know, like it's a nice paycheck, but then also we're probably working a lot for the paycheck. So just kind of like what are some differences between your previous jobs and maybe this one that's like, you know, more, um, I don't want to say more towards the top, but in terms of pay, it's definitely up there and uh, in terms of visibility for sure. Um, and then what the workload might be like that it might be more, more than what we assume it's, it is. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, certainly the, the climate and the culture are really different. And so just the lifestyle for living in San Diego versus living in Pittsburgh is, is pretty different. Um, we know our neighbors here, um, our whole neighborhood, you know, there's big block parties throughout the year and um, uh, our kids riding their bikes and running around and um, people are um, very real here. Um, that's really impressed me about Pittsburgh. Um, and um, it's, it just feels old and established here. The, 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 the culture um, has has been an important fixture in um, in Pittsburgh for a long time, and 
Um, the symphony is, of course, the has the leading role in that, and so it's it it feels different to be a part of an organization that um, that has that history and that lineage. The to have had the uh, music directors um, going back to Steinberg and. Um, I think Barbaroli was here, and we have um, had Previn and uh, Mazel and uh, Janssens and now Hanek. And it, it's just kind of astonishing to be a part of um, an organization like that. Um, and the touring that we do, the recordings that are there, um, that's that's just a, a, like a different thing. And that's, that's something that I always dreamed of being a part of. Um, so while it's still the same notes and, you know, there were... I had incredible experiences in San Diego and great colleagues, and and I'm very proud of the concerts we put on. And uh, if there's probably one thing I miss most above all about San Diego, it was uh, the summer series that we did on the waterfront. Mm. Uh, We did 10 weeks of summer pops, and it was intense. It was usually like three programs, maybe maybe two, two or three programs, lots of movies, um, but pops on, on the waterfront. Uh, but every morning we'd have rehearsal and I would go out and just hang my feet over the edge of the, you know, over the water uh, on the bay and warm up, pointing my bell over at Coronado. And um, that was just a really awesome way to spend my summer. That's, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, so with it being, um, you know, as established as you described it and with, uh, you know, you're playing probably just big rep all the time and one of the things I've learned uh, in my orchestra and from the teaching that I've and the education I've received before is a big part of success in an orchestral career is mostly in terms of balance. How do we balance what I'm doing in the orchestra with filling in the gaps possibly with what I'm doing at home so that I don't ever lose some, you know, I'm always staying balanced with what I'm doing. Do you have any uh, strategies? Is it sort of like a week to week type thing? Do you have sort of a big picture look of how you do all this kind of thing? What's your approach to making sure you stay balanced in your job? Um, I'm, I'm seeking rightness. And so I'm, I'm always trying to establish that um, every day. And backstage before a big performance, no matter what the program is, um, I'm trying to find that balance and that rightness in my playing. And so that will carry me through whatever the music is. Yeah. And so if it's Alpine Symphony or um, a Bruckner Symphony, a Mahler Symphony, a Shostakovich, or, you know, um, Ravel or, or some, something, you know, from the classical era, light, it, it, that's still my, my foundation. And I don't want that to have to change week to week. Oh, now I need a classical setup. Um, the sound will change. Um, but my relationship, uh, with, um, the instrument and, um, my connection with the concept in my head, um, doesn't change. So when you're seeking rightness, is this something that you had a teacher tell you at one point in time and it seemed to work really well, so you've been doing the same thing for your entire life? Or have you been able to find ways to branch outside of maybe what you were taught in your education to find things that work for you specifically to develop your own sort of customized approach to rightness? And if that is true, uh, what do you feel like it allowed you to find that? Like, 
Was it experimentation? Was it just like a feeling that you were looking for? And no matter what you did, as long as you found that feeling, that was where you were headed. Like what kind of allowed you, if that's true, to be able to develop your own sort of customized way of making sure you had rightness as you described it? Um, I mean, it, it's been a process and I think, um, I've gone in and in and out of it throughout my life. Um, and that language is, is something that, um, I've sort of, um, that I, I, I believe Arnold Jacobs talked about that. Um, and, and so while I never worked with him and never, um, you know, was coached by him or met him. Um, I've certainly uh, read a lot of the things that he's written, and and so his his ideas of of um, of rightness, and I think also uh, Jimmy Stamp talked about that. Um, and um, you know, I've worked with a gazillion teachers and um, been able to take incredible information from everyone I've ever worked with, you know, um, or people I've played with. And every place that I've played, um, all these orchestras, I've had like an older mentor um, who kind of took me under their wing and I just soaked up everything they had to offer. And, um, and so in the various places, you know, I was getting their philosophy from their teachers and, you know, and, and in some cases, um, that that came down from the Chicago school and sometimes that came from other places. Um, but I've just tried to distill that. And then um, when I got to Pittsburgh, I had my thyroid out. Um, I had thyroid cancer. I found out a week after my audition that I had cancer. It's a good and, time to get thyroid yeah. cancer. <laughs> And so I um, asked for an early tenure decision so that I could have this surgery. And I didn't want to have surgery in the middle of my probation and then not know what it would be like returning to the instrument because I was aware that it would feel different. Um, and sure enough, uh, five months later, the, I got tenure and, I, and then I had the surgery out. And... Um, it was the size of like a tomato. I mean, it was, it was big, this tumor in my neck and it had been pressing on my windpipe. And, and so getting that out and then kind of relearning how to play as I was still pretty fresh on this job. So I had a summer to, to do this and I thought, well, I, I really need some outside help, a coach to help me with this uh, because, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that I use this as an opportunity to make, make sure that everything's right. And, um, I had a friend in San Diego who had gone through some focal dystonia and he had worked with an incredible coach named Jan Kagaris and she's in Chautauqua, New York. And so I contacted her and said, would you be willing to coach me through this? And so we had a few sessions before my surgery so that she could have kind of a, you know, a baseline for, for what my playing is like. And then she got to hear me <laughs> not really be able to play <laughs> after my surgery. And she, you know, she helped coach me back to health. Um, and, and she's a remarkable person and a remarkable coach. And I owe a lot of um, debt to her. Um, and uh, then after several months of, of working with her, um, a, a friend of mine um, who's 
a, um, a former trumpet player who has worked for 20 years in uh, mind-body medicine in hospitals with cancer patients, helping them to um, uh, better respond to treatment. And he um, has decided to return to music and do uh, work with musicians and in coaching. And and he ended up moving to Pittsburgh. And so um, <laughs> I started working with him one on one. And um, so he he his name is Gary Ferguson. And um, and so it was kind of like the baton got passed. And um, so I started working with him in person and, and he was the one who I think if I'm, if I'm going to say where the source of the word rightness came from, I think, you know, I can attribute it to him. Although I think I had heard it from other places before and it hadn't quite registered, but the way he said it, and it's um, it's, it's this feeling that, you know, when you're in balance, when you're stable um, and when you don't have, um, any resistance to um, the freedom of movement and the freedom of energy flow that you want in your playing. Um, and that's, that's kind of like esoteric <laughs> way of talking, um, but it's, it's a feeling state that everybody knows when they're in it. Um, and it's not something that you can think yourself into. It's something that you can feel yourself into. And so when I'm out of it, I know I'm out of it. And I can kind of remind myself of what it feels, what it felt like to be in it and what that situation was like and kind of bring myself into that state. Um, so I can test that by checking my flow on Chickowitz, you know, and Concone and um, Clark and Lipsler's articulation and, and notice if there's any sort of resistance to the flow or any color changes that shouldn't be there. Um, but I'm trying to go like a little deeper to look for the source of, of why that wouldn't be. I don't want to clamp down and manipulate it and control the air or my sound. I want it to come from a, a, a deeper source of, of uh, feeling and of uh, vision clarity of vision yeah that's it's more fascinating to me that you have just talked about that than you can imagine it sounds a lot like flow state that i just yeah. interviewed a woman named lynn heilman on it's this feeling of like there's no flow state's more of a mental space right we you're sort of describing it as a physical i mean mental yeah. too i'm sure but you're also right. giving getting like sort of physical cues of ease yeah but it's definitely about you're in this space where it's just hard enough that it's like you can do it, but it's not too hard. So they're like the sh it's like the right amount of effort. Yeah, and right. I, the, the more your ch challenge uh, increases, the if you have the skills to match them, right, then you stay in that flow state. Right. So this is the, the next question I would I would like to dig into is what you know what the signs are the way you just described it is very apparent you know what you're looking for for what would be rightness so even if you're not in it you understand how to get in it how do we help people who don't know or who have not experienced it how do we help them find it a with the help of someone like you or b say they don't have access to someone like you what are their chances of being able to find this place of rightness in their playing or at least find whether they can do it over the course of the entire instrument or on like one note, right? That's where it's going to start. How do we help them find this if they don't know what they're looking for? 
That's a great question. And you hit it the nail on the head when you said start on one note. Because, um, you know, that's, I think, the importance of every teacher is to help a student discover a great sound and a, um, a balanced approach, rightness, on the simplest material necessary to be able to experience that. Um, and so that's my goal as a teacher is to kind of show a student what that feels like and to help walk them through that experience of playing something as well as anyone else on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, uh, a note. Uh, but that that G was as good as anybody has ever played a G, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and, and, and uh, like above average high school student, you know, a good college student who, you know, isn't ready for the big time yet can experience that. And so then the goal is, is to help them realize that they can expand that. Yeah. And they're working from the inside out in their approach, if, if they start with that kernel of, of rightness. Um, how do we help them find that? Um, well, I think um, a big clue is in listening to the greatest artists um, and greatest singers who um, exposed rightness in, in, you know, in, in their performances. And, and so we have that uh, revelation. We have that, you know, on tape and we can listen to it. And I think that that um, can kind of soak its way in. And so then we try to copy that and imitate that. Um, there's no real, I think, way to, um, for me to pick up an instrument and sound like Pavarotti or to sound like um, Rene Fleming if I'm all tense or if there's some kind of resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, imitation is, is a big, big part of it. And I think we have to use our imaginations um, to get us out of, outside of w- what we think are the limits of our body. And so I think that we have to balance the idea of what we want, which is listening to the recordings and being really clear about the sound that we want. Um, and really... Um, be imaginative when we talk about how we're going to get it because that's where everybody goes wrong because everybody then says, all right, do this with your lips, do this with your tongue, um, you know, hold this position, uh, make sure you do this with your gut. Um, and I want my body to not exist when I'm playing. I want it to be completely neutral. And, um, sometimes we need reminders on like paying attention to it, to how to release and how to relax. Um, but I think that the best ways of getting our body into that right place is through um, analogies of like other experiences that we have away from the trumpet where, you know, we know what it feels like maybe to, or we can imagine what it would feel like to um, hit a tennis ball like really perfectly with a tennis racket and flow right through that um, or the perfect golf swing or diving beautifully into the water. Um, you know, these are ways of the, you know, you, that you might imagine the delivery into sound rather than like, do this with your air, then do this with your lips, now tongue this way, and and then hope that you get a sound. I want the that analogy, that image of these sort of physical, big physical motions that we can, maybe we have a memory of. And ideally you're talking to the student and you kind of get an idea of, what their experience is and and maybe it's not swimming but maybe they have you know 
know what it's like um, in some other aspect of how, how they've experienced flow and ease. Um, and then they're going to bring that to the trumpet so that when they bring the trumpet up to their lips, they can stay in that space. Yeah, it's in, there's a few things that I think are really fascinating about what you just said. One, you're essentially talking about sort of neuro, I don't know if it's neuro-linguistic programming or whatever, but it's that idea of like, what's your mental association with this thing? Is it easy? Is it flow? Is it like, if you think, if you believe I have played the trumpet so many times with this flow, whether or not I know, whether or not I can do it every time, I know it's possible and I've done it. And so like, I know I can do that. And so, and that's very different than I will never get there because I can't figure it out. I think even like, having that mental space of I have never done this, I can't do it, it is detrimental, obviously, because like, you're not going to work in the same way. Uh, the other thing I think is important, I think I have what would amount to a, a bit of a controversial opinion on this that I would be curious for your thoughts. <laughs> it'll line up. I have this belief that it is acceptable to step outside of the music and think about technical production as a means to uh, try to identify spots of tension or inconsistencies or something in production. Because when somebody plays the trumpet and there's a sound that does not come out that's, uh, I guess, beautiful or whatever, like it could be any number of things, right? And so trying to identify what the thing is so we can possibly improve that one thing, this is like sort of a technical pursuit. But then my belief is, is the second we figure that out, then we memorize what that sound is so that when we put it back into practical application, we are then thinking, I'm trying to make this particular sound, and I know what this sensation is like to create that. So ultimately, it is about the sound, but I think it's acceptable to step outside of thinking sound-based and sort of like music-based to focus on production aspects for a short time to sort of like basically work in cues that you might be able to sort of like an auxiliary assistance exercise for a bigger exercise. Do you have yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that it can be really effective to still work on the um, technique away from the music, away from the trumpet. <laughs> mm. um, and so like, uh, I think that a lot of um, the problems occur before um, the air even enters the trumpet. And so um, I can do air patterns on the back of my hand um, or to really hear and feel the quality and uh, the sound, the actual pitch and color of the air itself. And if that's really good, um, I've probably fixed it already. Um, but nine times out of 10, a student does that and you hear all this hiss and tension or changing of color all over the place mm. when they do an air pattern of whatever passage they're struggling with. Um, and um, I want all of my function to be allowing um, an uninhibited flow all the way to the bell of the instrument. And so, um, while yes, there are times where I notice what my tongue is doing, or yes, there are times where I notice what my lips are doing in order to make sure that they remain a passageway for the air, um, I 
by controlling what the lip is doing, um, I am not in touch with the sound. And I want the sound itself to influence um, the, the way that I, um, the sound, as Jan Kageris taught me, the sound calls the air. Mm. So it starts with the sound which then draws the air like a magnet. It, it compels the air. Um, and then it just releases out of me. It is possible to diagnose and fix things physically. And I do that when necessary to myself and with students. But I want them to be releases, like releases that a, a massage therapist would do, you know, like, oh, there's some tension here. We're just going to release that. We're going to let that go, Right. Not like, all right, I want you to, whenever you play, make sure you hold your shoulder blade just like this. Right, right. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, Because that's going to be different tomorrow than it was today. Right. Yeah. And like you said, okay, you do this physical maneuver that's different and now the sound is better. Now the sound can teach you. And that's, that's kind of what you said. Um, I always want the sound to be my teacher and let my body learn from the sound. And that's um, tomorrow when... Um, I feel crummy because I didn't get enough sleep or it's the end of a concert and I'm exhausted like a basketball player having to make that last free throw shot at the end of a game, right? It's going to be a different physical effort than it was at the beginning of the game. Um, but I want, that's when my concentration has to be so clearly on the sound itself so that my body can do whatever different thing it may need to do right, right. Um, at that point. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that there are places to address little bits of technique, um, but I think that most trumpet players are way, way, way too technically minded already. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, but you you said it beautifully. I think I use it as sort of a diagnosing tool, mm-hmm. and then we try to get away from that as fast as possible in a specific instance, right? It's not a blanket, everybody right. does this thing. But something like timing drills are a great example for me. We're, we're trying to expose what's happening when we release air, and that's the only thing we're concerned with. So it's not musically related. It's a bit of a drill, but right. it can teach us. And I don't – when I have people do it, I don't have them do it indefinitely. It's like usually a short period of time, and it's only to teach this, the correct sensation of releasing air so that we have something that we are trying to do when we play music, we know, okay, when I do this, it creates a, I want to ask you this. I believe consistency is, um, is met expectation. Basically you, you know what to expect because you've had enough successes, say in the practice room that you think to yourself, if I think this and I release my air in such way, this sound is what will come out of the bell on the other end, on the other side. And when you learn to expect that sound more often than not, I think that's what drives consistency because then like your production is like the thing you're thinking and feeling is serving your production. And ultimately it is music and sound based, but it's like a, I have played it right so many times. I know that this is what's going to come out the other end of my bell because I've seen that. So if I, do this production-based thing, this is what music will. So if I think this music and breathe this way and release this way, this sound will come out. Do you find that to be true or do you have sort of a different way of thinking about it? 
Both. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, ex, um, um, met expectation is exactly the name of the game. And, and, you know, I'm doing this workshop right now and I was, I was talking about how, you know, there's not just one perfect way to play an excerpt. Um, that you could play it differently every single time. The goal is to have a clear and complex image of what you want and then to execute that exactly the way that you imagine, right? right? And so then you can be a flexible musician and incredibly consistent. Um, And I think you're absolutely right that that is consistency, is meeting that expectation every single time. Um, I just think that there's a difference between doing music and letting music happen. Mm. And I think there's a freedom and a grace and an elegance and a beauty that is transcendent that comes from those absolutely just (laughs) the greatest musicians who've ever lived who are not doing their music. I don't think that Louis Armstrong like thought now, if I just do this thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this lick is going to come out, or this sound is going to come out, and I know that if I do the same thing that I practice, that this sound is going to come out. I think yeah. he had. I think that that sound um, was all he thought about. Now, maybe you know, we we do need triggers to help us to learn good delivery and good healthy habits, and and so I need to remind myself of that in the in establishing rightness. Yes, absolutely. But that's, that's what, for me, establishing rightness allows me to do, is to forget yeah, right. about the process and the doing. Yeah, I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm, these sort of hypotheses or hypothesize, whatever the plural of hypothesis is, that's kind of what I'm testing right now, is I have this belief if people just knew, if they knew the, they knew their instrument and they knew their relation to their instrument, I think more people would play musically because they would feel that freedom to say, I know that this, I have faith if I commit to this, this C or this G at the beginning of pictures will be there. Well, if I know that that note will be there and I don't have to worry about that, then what should I worry about? How do I want to play that note? I have this this overarching belief that that's true. I don't, I can't prove it. But I, I'm testing it with my own playing. It's like if I know, and this came from watching Hokan playing these Charliers, where the mm-hmm. like it's just it just goes. Like it doesn't sound, it doesn't look like he's really struggling, especially when starting. It just seems like it's like a boom, and then he just plays this music. And I want that's I started thinking that I wonder if he's just played the trumpet well for so long that he just knows it's going to be there, and then he just plays. He's like letting music happen because he knows the production will be solid. Yeah. Well, and Hokan talks about gravity, you know, that, that organic uh, ictus of a conductor, you know, that comes down and boom, there's, you know, and, and that's the kind of delivery into a sound that we want that's right through the beginning of the note. And, um, and, and so I've, I've seen him reference that in a master class. And so the point that, you know, you made about noticing that in his playing, I think is, um, shows that he's practicing what he preaches. Yeah, right. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, we want the instrument to be an extension of us and for our voice to come through and as if the instrument is absolutely a part of us, that, that the instrument is not separate. It, you know, it is one and the same. And so, you know, I tell students that it's like turning on the lights in a room when your sound 
uh, comes on and it's, you don't have to fill the room with your sound. It's, <laughs> it's just there. All of a sudden, the entire room is just filled with your sound. Yeah. And if you take that approach that, that like, oh, okay, so I don't have to push my sound. Oh, I don't have to blow air through the trumpet. Oh, I don't have to make anything happen. I just have to expect that all of a sudden the entire room is just like lighting up with my sound. And, and I have a very, very specific idea of what that color and texture and, you know, uh, dynamic is then I fill the room with that sound. And when I go to play something soft like Schumann 2, I'm not like putting on the brake. I'm filling the room immediately with a like velvety color. I struggle with that a lot. It's that excerpt in particular is one that I, when I, if I've played it one time with the orchestra and of course it's 10 times easier because you have everybody around you to sort of sit on top of and do exactly what you're describing. It, it makes so much sense. But when I'm playing by myself, the perceived, I would love your opinion on this, the perceived volume, even if I'm playing the same volume, the perceived volume is that it's too loud. And so then I pull back all of that support and I play this really thin, sort of small sound. And now I sound like I have a thin, small sound on Schumann 2 rather than that sound that I want to play with, but I'm perceiving it to be too loud. Do you have any thoughts on how to combat that? Yeah. Well, the problem is you're reacting to your sound instead of being proactive with exactly what you want. And that's the thing about perceived volume is that uh, we don't just turn down the dial on the instrument. You know, we play in color. And so we shouldn't be afraid of our sound filling a room with a velvety sound. That's not going to be too much. But every time a student tries to play that soft, then they get that thin sound you're talking about. But guess what? It also sounds louder Mm. because there's um, some kind of uh, resistance there or because the color in their mind didn't really change. They just tried to turn down the dial. And so, um, you know, I... Of course, I use all the equipment changes that you would need to get that velvety sound and go to like a deep V-cup mouthpiece and play a rotary trumpet, you know, and, and you can do all that stuff and play into the stand and put a bag over your bell. But if your concept is still like not clear about the color that you want, um, it, students experience a lot of freedom in excerpts like that when they realize, oh, I can play that comfortably <laughs> you associate like soft with uncomfortable, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you actually can give yourself to it. You can fall like completely generously into that excerpt with with uh, uninhibited. If the the color is ah yeah. uh, that you want. And then it's not too much. And then I play an audition for the Pittsburgh Symphony and, you know, I have somebody come up to me on the from the brass section and, and say, oh my God, your color on the Schumann, that was amazing. You know, it wasn't like, wow, you played so soft. That was so great. Right. Like it's, it, the, it's a language issue, soft and quiet, you know. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I think this is going to help me segue into your book. <laughs> Because that's just such incredible <laughs> feedback, right? And this is the – I'm just going to read it right here from the from the uh, email that I got sent. So, Micah has a book that's coming out. When this release – it's on the 24th, right? Yeah, it's coming yeah. out next week. 
So this will air on the 22nd. So in, oh, sweet. when this airs in two days, you can get this book. Says we you are can release- pre-order it now. You can pre-order it now. We are releasing a book that features 30 trumpet solos, newly engraved, edited with commentary for $36. Um, I w- obviously, you're going to talk about it, but I just I want to... This is the kind of commentary I'm imagining you're getting. All of that stuff that we just heard, you talk about Schumann 2 and your thoughts on how to get these different colors and how to play so that it's there's freedom and you can give yourself to it rather than feel, this is the kind of stuff you're going to get. And I think that kind of perspective, even on stuff that we think we know, I think will be incredibly valuable. So do you want to talk about this project, where it came from, why you thought it would be important to do, to put another trumpet book out into the ether and um, just kind of like what you're, what maybe even what you feel like you learned from this process and why it was, let alone what others might get from it, why you feel like it was a worthwhile project just for you. Yeah. Well, it, I think it's a book that we don't really have. It's it's a book of the, you know, the big 30 solos that are in one place in, you know, newly engraved, really high quality. And you get my take on it. You get my take on every note. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's, it's my interpretation based on, you know, what, how I would perform these and how I would recommend that people perform them. And, um, and I got to pick all the solos. So um, I, I made this list and it's, it's the kind of book that you can get when you're a student, you can get it when you're a pro, it'll last you a life, lifetime, you know, and it's the book that I wish I'd had when I was a student. Um, and I, I mean, in fact, I kind of did, I had a bootleg version, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I learned all my solos in it. And, um, I wish that I had had this, um, because, um, I have these books that I've had since I was a kid and they have all my notes in them and all the things that my teachers have recommended. And it would be the place where you learn all these solos and to be able to, <clears throat> have your notes and all in that one spot, um, I think, I think could be a really cool thing. Um, so, so I'm excited about the book and, and, uh, what, what it offers people. Um, and yeah, you know, the commentary that I have is, is, is really, really more about the, the music and, and what I think each, um, movement or section calls for. This is the new thing for me. I've never edited a book before. And, um, and so I was being sent files and I'm sitting there on my iPad with the pen and I'm circling things and I'm going through every single piece looking for errors because we're newly engraving everything. And so I had to make sure that every single note was right. Every single articulation was right. And every little notation was what I thought it should be. You know, and if if I felt like, you know, this should really say flowingly here, or I think that this should be played conspirito, um, it, it it helped me clarify, like, exactly the musical style that um, I would want to play these solos in. It's not, it, you can't be vague um, when you're making musical notation. Yeah. So... This is like a very time-intensive project, I imagine. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, like I kind of, I kind of asked it before, just to just to zoom in on it. What do you feel like? What do you feel like it offered you to dive into these pieces and really think about it? Whether it could be in terms of musicianship or just as a someone who produces something like a book or or a newly engraved book. Like, what do you feel like you learned that you just didn't know, and you're like, wow, I'm glad I know that now from this process. Um, it could be. I mean, one I think thing. I think I I think I. <laughs> I learned the importance of the ink. 
I learned that like composers didn't write things in the music by accident. And um, even just the little things, like at the beginning of a piece, it might say, allegro con spirito, you know, and you might grace over, you know, gloss over that. But it's like, it's not just a tempo, it's a style, it's with, with spirit. And there's, you know, you're searching like, what's the perfect way in one word, two words that I can encapsulate the style that I want you to have here. Um, and something like uh, marcato, you know, what, what does that really mean? It means distinctly. Um, and, and, and so like, that's, it, it, I think it helped, helped me think, uh, more carefully and, um, considerately about, about notation in music. Um, and so if I approach any piece now, I think I'm going to keep a better eye out for every marking and, um, especially any text in the music. Yeah. I have many more questions about this, but I do want to say we sort of just finished like the, the technical part of this yeah. segment. Listen, guys, my listeners, I'm speaking to you right now. This is the, f I can finally provide you value for all of the time that you've been listening to this podcast. Uh, this is my first opportunity to do this. I'm very, very proud actually to be able that we worked this out, but uh, uh, upon, upon completion of your order, if you type in spit 2020, Trombone and trumpet books will be 20%. No, 10%. Oh my gosh, I need to do that again. Spit 2020 will be 10% off trumpet and trombone books. And there's free shipping on this. So there's a little bit of like, oh, I listened to this podcast and now I know this uh, little code thing. For me, that's like special. I know it happens everywhere all over the time, all the time, but that's very special for me. So I would highly recommend uh, checking this out. I have not seen the book, like, because it's not, it, you know, like, I haven't seen it. I just, from speaking with Micah right now and knowing that having all these solos in one place, even just those two things alone make this something I would consider checking out, let alone um, all of the fun and hours of practice you would get out, all the value you would get out of it, so... Yeah, and um, it's not expensive. I mean, right. <laughs> how many solos do you get for $36? Right, yeah, right. It's very, <laughs> that's a good point. Um, so I have two sort of pointed questions. One of them is, what's your relationship between this is my interpretation, this is how I like it, and this is what the composer intended? Um, as a performer, I'm hoping to um, connect with what I, I think the composer intended and to bring um, knowledge of... Uh, uh, the history and the context of of the time in which it was written, and um, and then I can't not um, add some of my personal interpretation because I am the performer, even if I tried not to, right? Right. <laughs> um, but I try to do that in an, in an informed way, and um, so as the editor, um, I tried to stay out of the way when I could. And then, you know, it was interesting. There were some solos, um, like from the classical era, the Haydn, the Hummel, the Neruda, and the um, the Baroque pieces that I've included, the um, Torelli, uh, the Purcell Sonata, the Telemann. We didn't do too many piccolo pieces just because um, we wanted to stick with mostly big horn. I think, you know, there are there are piccolo books out there, um, but but we we wanted to have some Baroque 
music. Those are the the pieces that really don't have a whole lot of notation in them, mm-hmm. right? Right. And um, you can go out and you can you can find an urtext of the um, Haydn, you know, and you can get a, a really basic notation of, and you can see how little is in there, and then you can add your own interpretation. Um, for this book, um, I decided to market how I like to hear it. (laughs) Sure. And so there's a little more there. Um, and since you can pretty much, you know, um, you know, many people may already own those solos. I think that's an added value. Like, well, what, what would Micah think about this? And, and, um, and so that was, probably one of the most painstaking things about this whole process was, you know, pulling my hair out about like, well, what's too much? What's too little? How do I actually want this to go? And what's the best way to mark that? Um, because I, you know, and I'm, and I'm sitting there on the couch at one in the morning, driving my wife crazy, just like singing through these in my head over and over again, you know, (laughs) well, actually I like doing it this way. And, and of course I don't always play it exactly the same way. So I want to leave some room for that while still giving direction. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated thing, um, but um, I'm I'm proud of how it turned out. Yeah, and you know when I was younger, I sort of feel like I was coached, or maybe I took it too far into what well, you can listen to recordings, but if you listen to too many recordings, then you're going to play it like them, and you're not going to play it like you. So we should minimize how many recordings, maybe specifically of trumpet players, we listen to, so that we develop our own style. Now I think that's a valuable thing to an extent, but when you're a young trumpet player, imitation is like where you should be just because we just aren't mature enough. We haven't seen, we haven't read, we haven't performed enough. And so I think it can be valuable for especially, I mean, for people, like for me, it would be valuable to say, how does Micah do this? Because it's like, maybe I have my own, but I might get some more ideas. But as a younger trumpet player, where maybe you just don't have any ideas, it's definitely a place to start. <laughs> like whether yeah, or not it's right. ultimately what you do, it's definitely a place to start with right. a good, solid, like Micah's thought about this more than you have. You should consider what he <laughs> says, you know? <laughs> well, and it, one of the cool things about the book is we have a list of recommended recordings for um, for every piece. Oh, and so nice. with links um, on the website. And so you buy the book, you you know, and you want to learn the solo, you go look it up and, and I've basically selected which recordings, you know, that um, I prefer um, and want to recommend um, for each solo. And so um, that's a, a, an additional, you know, way to learn and, and gather other people's interpretation. Yeah, that's like such a comprehensive resource in, in yeah. all in all, you know. The other question I have, and then I have just more stuff to, you know, ask you, but the other question I have specific to this project, and I'm going to, I'm going to, Pose that it's going to sound horrible, but I think you'll know what I mean. Like, who are you to do this project, right? Like, who are you to decide that you are, we will want your interpretation of these 30 solos and that it's like, it was your job. Like, how, like for me, I've, I've grown into understanding that like, it's not about that, but for a very long time, I would have been like, nobody would care about my interpretation, even if I have the quote best in the world, right? It's, I, I think it would, it would have been hard for me to take that step into, I'm going to do this project because I see the value in it and somebody's got to do it. And I'm going to do this because I think it's valuable. How did you come to like, I'm going to provide my interpretation because I think that that's valuable to people. And like, 
Do you, does that does the question already make sense, or do I need to? Oh yeah, yeah I mean okay. there was there was a there were a lot of uh, insecurities um, going into this, and you know that that's sort of that. Um, oh, uh, what do they call it? The um, where you feel like you're going to be found out for not having the oh, skills that imposter you imposter yeah. syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah, exactly. Um, because I, you know, these there are elements of this that I've never done before. I've never edited music, you know, and I had to pick these solos. And so I, I had to decide, you know, what's going to go in this book. And so every step of the way, I had to deal with that a little bit. Now, I didn't set out realizing the scope of the project. <laughs> so, so some of these things caught up to me as I went along. I didn't begin thinking, all right, I'm going to, uh, you know, develop for the world this book of my interpretations on these solos. I didn't really think about the fact that my interpretations were going to be part of it. Like, I said, yeah, I'll do this project. I'll pick out these solos, and I'll make sure that there aren't wrong notes in it. Sounds good. You know, and then (laughs) as I went along, I realized, oh, like, I'm going to have to make decisions here. I'm going to have to decide. Ooh, well, um this is this is crazy you know like are are people going to what about like some um person who's like done a dissertation on this right. composer and like are they going to disagree with my take on this phrase and <laughs> maybe uh, <laughs> and so um i i was a little bit afraid of that but in the end um i think it comes from a place of um honesty that's like well this is this is me and and i'm a you know principal trumpet player in an orchestra and i do play solos and i play recitals and i study music and um i do have something to offer um and i i do believe that um you know beyond just like making sure that it was correct um i think that um my interpretations do have value and you know it was interesting that when I started to make the list of recorded recommended recordings, I realized when I started to listen to them that I had a unique opinion. Mm. That there isn't a recording out there of any of these pieces that's like, yeah, that's exactly how I want to play that. Yeah, interesting. And so, like, especially if you take the classical repertoire... Because there's so you know so much variety of of, of um, interpretation that it became very clear to me that oh I have a distinct interpretation of this mm. and um, I don't think I I quite recognized that until I had done the book and then listened to a bunch of recordings and realized that none of them exactly reflected how I thought it should go. That's so cool. That's really cool. I mean, what a cool thing to find, you know, after yeah. after the many hours of doing it to come to this and be like, oh, like, I have come to my own opinion. And it's valid. And it's valid because it's valid, but also because it's just another unique. That's so cool. I like that a lot. I think one of the things I sh- would struggle with in that, and I, I mean, you're basically in that echelon, so I'd love your opinion. But I think there's a pervasive thought that it's like you have to get to a certain point in our career trajectory. And then it's like everything you do is fine. But up until then, like, it's not that it's not valuable. It's just not as valuable, right? Like, I don't know how to describe this. 
Um, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And I think this book project would be that. It's like some of us would say he's principal in Pittsburgh. Like, of course he would give his interpretations. But then there's other people who'd be like, well, he's only principal in Pittsburgh. It's not like it's like Chicago or Berlin or even though it is. You know, I feel like we have these perceptions of where things lie and who's what and what's the ranking. And of course, none of that matters. But I love your sort of opinion on just that concept in general. Like, where are we? Where do we rank? And all those kinds of things. Do you have an opinion on it? Do you disagree with me? I'm just curious if that strikes anything that's thought provoking for you. Uh, yeah, it's just a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yes, um, I'm, I, I think certain jobs, depending on the, um, um, prominence, maybe demand more of you. And so there, there's, you know, just a sort of a higher level of expectation. Um, but beyond that, I'm not really a different player or person other than the fact that I grow every day. <laughs> right. And so, yes, I could say I'm better today than I was four years ago when I was in that orchestra and seven years ago when I was in that orchestra. But I, I, that's because I'm seven years older and seven years more experienced and have just been exposed to that much more. Um, and so I can't really, its I can't, you know, uh, link it to, well, I have this position, so therefore I'm better. And and that's where I think people, you know, that don't understand um, that it's just a job and it's not a pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you just described is you have your own trajectory that you're on that's guided by you and your goals. And it's not, it's possibly your goals are affected by your job, but they're not defined by your job. I think that's an important distinction is that I have my own thing and some of it might line up with my job, but some of it might be different. And I have my own growth trajectory and I, I'm deciding what success is. And so we don't, I don't necessarily have to up level into a different orchestra to say, okay, now I'm better. I can just get better on my own terms and what that means for me. And I think there's, I mean, you've been fortunate enough, obviously, to go up the ladder, but I've, I was at your audition and oh, I yeah. played, I felt really well, except for the last excerpt, I kind of bombed on Bartok and I didn't make it past the prelim round, right? Now, I feel like I play the trumpet really, really well. But if I was like, I have to get into a group like Pittsburgh to prove to myself that I'm getting better at the trumpet, I'd be very angry right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. I would be mad right. at you. I would be like, <laughs> screw this guy, you know? And I think it's just, I've under, I've come to understand that I can get better on my own terms. I don't have to like get somewhere else to prove that that work is worthy or worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, you're just, you're looking for what team you want to play on, um, you know, and maybe a, a great match is the Alabama Symphony, or maybe there's something else in your future that's an orchestra, academia, who knows, you know, right. like we just don't know our journey. And, um, and I've had some hard lessons along the way to kind of teach me that um, because, um, you know, there were certain jobs that I thought I just desperately needed that were, you know, the, um, the only way I could see my path going and they did not work out. And um, I was devastated. Um, and while I have won these jobs and basically been in professional orchestra life my whole career. Um, I didn't see myself as successful for a long time. 
um, yet. You know, I saw other people who were my age having more success and um, being better than me because of that, you know, and having not reached the the point where, um, you know, I would, I don't know, where I felt like I'd met my potential or um, hadn't proven myself yet. You know, sort of all those things uh, were going through my mind through for years. Um, but, you know, you don't, you, now looking back, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I wouldn't change that um, I kind of worked my way through and yeah, you can call it a ladder, but like some of the greatest experiences I've had and some of my closest friends, um, have come from those orchestras along the way where I've left and, and I miss them and, you know, um, loved my time there. And as a principal trumpet player now, um, I get to draw upon my experience, like significant experience as second and third trumpet um, and so I value that, um, and I know how different orchestras function. And so I value what, you know, um, what a healthy organization can be like. And, you know, there's all these lessons that you sort of learn along the way, um, that I wouldn't have gotten a chance to learn if I'd just been dropped straight into a big chair in a big orchestra. And, um, I don't know that I would have been ready, but even if I'd gotten the job, like I, I wouldn't have had that wealth of experience. Yeah. I, I've, I- I've come to understand that these models of success are one arbitrary, right? Like either people determine them for themselves that I have to reach some sort of thing and then I will consider myself successful or it's this like pervasive cultural thing where, you know, it's like we see certain, certain people getting certain things. And then we don't have those things I've struggled with. This is what I've struggled with the most is I'm in Alabama and I see people in bigger orchestras having what seems like more opportunities to like do master classes or travel or do solos. And I'm sitting here being like, Oh, I'm ready. You know? And that's like a lot of why this podcast exists is because I was like, you know what, maybe I can do something proactive and positive. And, and now it's become a thing. I feel like people know me in some ways, more for my online presence than for being principal trumpet in the Alabama Symphony, which is fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating. Exactly. And do you think you would have this podcast if you had been in a big orchestra? Absolutely not. Yeah, that's the point, actually, is my life went this direction. And exactly the same as you said, I'm I'm incredibly thankful because I feel I'm serving a purpose that's bigger than myself through this endeavor. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's openness. Yeah, uh, that's that's great, Ryan. So I want to harken back a little bit to some stuff you said. I'm going to try to remember um, because I'm interested right now in this in, in the concept of privilege. And when we hear this, we mostly hear it in terms of white privilege, right? Just being white, you have more stuff, which whatever element of truth there is to that, I'm going to put that aside for a second because I think people who have stuff – and maybe more than they, quote, need, have privilege, right? And that's not, there are people of all races and all genders that have blessings and abundance, right? And so I would call that to be a level of privilege. I'm looking at you on a nice computer with a nice camera and on a nice, like there's a level of privilege involved with what I'm doing, but I also feel a great responsibility with how I use that to possibly share my abundance with others. Now, you're in the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, and I see that you're, 
right now due to the coronavirus, you're, you have your um, your one month intensive, whatever, however you want to define it, but it's that classes and lessons and uh, master classes and stuff. And then I also see there's like a fundamentals thing that may be separate that you just launched. So you're clearly interested in finding ways to give back and share what knowledge you have. Why? What, how do you view this concept of privilege and what's your responsibility to give back? Or like how much of it is my job takes up so much of my time, it's hard for me to give back. Like what's your relationship with all of that? I, I want to be able to offer what I have and meet people's needs where they are. And, um, you know, uh, my great passion in life is teaching and all of a sudden with the coronavirus, I'm stuck at home. Everyone's stuck at home. And I kind of had to let performing take a back seat. And it was this opportunity in disguise to sort of realize, okay, now maybe I need to find a way to reach out to these students. And I didn't have any of the equipment. I'd never, you know, I'm not a person who had an online presence. I didn't, I, so I built a website and a uh, Facebook page. I started Instagramming. Um, and, um, but I, it, I was going to be at Aspen this summer and I reached out to those students and I said, you know, you guys got your summer plans canceled. You're all at home. How's it going? You know, is there anything I can do to help? What do you need? And um, they got back and said, you know, uh, kind of let me know individually how they were doing. And out of that, it just seemed like, you know what, why don't we all get together? Let's just have like a big Zoom chat. We'll hang out and um, introduce each other because they didn't get to have like that social environment of a summer festival. And it's so critical for these students who are hungry to have this experience in the summer, especially something that they were specifically planning on, you know, that they'd audition for, that they'd put all their sort of hopes in and um, and I, 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 it was, I, I hurt for them. And so I, I said, well, let's, let's do a, a thing and I'll, you know, offer a free masterclass and we'll, you know, you'll get my thoughts on some things. And so that happened. And, and out of that, you know, one of the students said, I'd really like something more intensive. You know, w- would you be able to offer something that's like, I, I've become really close in some auditions and whenever auditions start back up again, I want to be ready. I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'll, I'll, you know, I I could just do something with you and we could just do something, but, but maybe it would be more effective if we had some studio classes and maybe we could get some, you know, several students together, you know, what, what would that work out like? And he said, that'd be good. You know, I think, and he helped me, you know, he said, I think maybe like about four people would be just about right, you know, because then we could all have enough time to play. And so I said, okay, let's, let's do that. And so we, I created this uh, one month long audition intensive and I'm in uh, the week three right now of that. And um, <laughs> it's intense. I mean, I'm spending a ton of time. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a way for me to connect with them and help them connect with each other. Um, you know, I'm having them play in studio class for each other. I'm having them today. They're all supposed to record a mock audition. So I sent them the list for that late last night. Um, I'm putting, to, I'm putting to get, it's a course that I'm putting them through. So I have, um, you know, all these thoughts and, and you go give a master class, and usually at a master class, you just kind of show up and maybe you say a little something and then the students all play. And then you, you know, you, it's like three or four little mini private lessons, but you speak to the group about them, you know, and that's it. Like yeah. 
virtually no preparation. Well, this is like, <laughs> I mean, tons of preparation because I want these students to get as much as they possibly can out of uh, uh, the experience. And I realized, well, I need to like learn how to make a slideshow. And so, you know, I'm, I'm doing like a legit presentation where I, you know, each week we talk about a different aspect of the preparation for auditions and, and then they're getting the private lessons. Um, and I think it's been really impactful for them. It's certainly been, um, great for me to like put all this to paper and like make a course out of it. Um, and then for this fundamentals course that I have coming up, um, that was just kind of what came out of this. Like, well, you know, everybody keeps wanting to talk about the basics and that's kind of where we go in our lessons. And I'd like to be able to help people change their playing from the inside out. And, um, so, and that, that's been interesting because I wanted to make it possible for as many people to do it who want to as, as can, you know, and it's a lot of time for me and I'm going to put a lot of preparation into it and that's time away from my family. And, and, you know, so there's, there's value there. Um, and of course, um, but I have students who have reached out to me or who I've reached out to and said, you know, um, I want to make it possible for you to be able to do this. And, you know, what's it going to take? Is it a, you know, I'll just cover it, you know, but I want you to join us because I would value you being a part of this. Um, and um, so I, I I guess that's a way of, of sort of, you know, using my privilege to try to try to reach people. Um, it's it's um, something that I, I think, again, it's, it goes back to that question, like, <laughs> who are you to think that what you have to offer is, is so important that it's a, um, you know, that it's, uh, everyone needs this, you know, and, and that this is this generous gift. Um, I'm like, well, okay. But, um, I do believe in what I have to say. I do passionately believe in what I have to say. And I do believe that it's something that can change, uh, fundamentally the type of sounds that we hear from trumpet players. Um, and the trumpet players who are coming to auditions who are just um, uh, technical machines but really don't have much to say or don't really have control over their instrument. Um, I want to help with that. And I think I, I do have some really valuable ways of, of helping people with that. And um, so for people who don't have the resources, um, I, you know, it's like join in. It just just come on and let me know that you want to be a part of it and and you can be a part of it. Uh, that's 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 what I'm doing right now. Yeah, I I sort of didn't intend it to be like. I mean, I'm happy that you described it, but now that you've described it, although I didn't intend it to be, you should tell people how to find out about the fundamentals one. How can they sign up if they're interested in signing up? When's the deadline? All those kinds of things. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's coming up pretty soon. Um, it's. Uh, let me see the calendar. It starts on July 27th. Okay. So like And it runs 2 weeks. You get a private lesson and um four master classes on fundamentals and we're going to do two warm-up classes where I'm going to kind of walk through how I get um that feeling of rightness in my playing, you know, and and how I'm going to start my day or how I'm going to what I'm going to do backstage before a big performance to, to get there. Um, and what that sounds like and what that feels like. Um, cool. 
And um, and so that's on my website, micawilkinson.com slash register. Okay. Um, that's and uh, yeah, the cost good. is the cost is $300, but like I said, you know, scholarships that are, are basically, you know, just financial need from me, um, are, are available. Awesome. Well, check out his website. I'll, I'll make sure I link all this stuff cool. so Thanks. that, uh, people can find it and they can find ways to contact you. Um, I think it's a cool thing. I think, you doing this is a form of giving back. You just being willing to speak openly about what your experiences are and letting people, letting people like me and the rest of my listeners behind the curtain a little bit to show yeah. them some of the realities of what goes into what we do and that right. there's work behind it, but it's possible and we want to help people be able to figure that out. Like I think even doing something like a podcast episode is a, a, an amount of giving back. And so I'm thankful that you had done this, and I'm sure other people listening are. Um, I have just like, I don't know, I have one more big question, and then right. we'll see if it goes anywhere from there. But uh, it's a bit of a challenging question, so I hope it's not too, uh, I don't know, not offensive, but you had said teaching is a great passion or the greatest passion. Is that what you said? I don't want to, I don't want to. Yeah. It's one of my greatest joys in life. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So why are you a principal trumpet player? (laughs) Because I think I teach through my sound. Okay. And so I think the greatest um, aspect of my teaching is my sound. Yeah. And I have uh, the greatest opportunity to share that from the stage. And um, it allows me the opportunity to teach uh, because people can hear my playing and maybe somebody's interested in that. And um, But if I just decided to step away from playing entirely and just teach, uh, at least for now in my career, I don't think, um, I, don't think I, I have enough out there and enough uh, opportunity for people to hear what I'm really about. Uh, so yes, I love playing and I love performing, and ma- that's also my great passion in life, <laughs> along with being a dad. You know, there are, <laughs> sure. like there are a number of great passions in my life, I guess. But um, but I love, um, uh, I absolutely love teaching, and I love it when a student who lives in Pittsburgh comes to me and he says, "Okay, how did you do that?" <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. Like you pick up the horn and it looks like you're about to, you know, like you're not even about to play. And then all of a sudden the room just erupts with your sound. What is that about? You know, well, they are already linking, um, you know, the wanting to link a concept to a sound and to an experience, you know, and it's, it's not just me talking in my basement about like, oh, well, if you make it better, it needs to be like this. And that's the, the whole thing about like, the concept of a concept driven approach. So, you know, a sculptor needs to know what they want at the end before they start chipping away at the stone, right? They need to know what, (laughs) what the end result needs to be. They don't just start chipping randomly like, Oh, (laughs) a teacher told me to do this. So I'm going to hack right here. And then another teacher told me to use this tool. So I'm going to use that tool, right? That that's how most students play. Um, And then like they do all those manufactured things and they get like an okay result. And it resembles kind of like a body, you know, (laughs) inside that stone, but like, it's not um, a work of art. And, um, and I think that they can put the pieces together if they hear something that's really compelling to them and they want to, they want to do that. And then they want to hear, okay, so tell me what's behind that. 
Yeah, that's a very cool perspective. Because you, sometimes it's, I mean, even in the way I asked the question, I implied that it, they are two separate things. You know, like right. not that pl- not that performers can't teach and that teachers can't perform, but that's sort of like there's two separate things. But I like how you've sort of linked the two as like you're performing as a practical application of your teaching. Yeah. And I mean, um, I'm just trying to tell a story on stage. I'm just trying to communicate. And so it's still a method of communication. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, to the end, this thing kind of we've talked about you as a trumpet player the entire time. And as you just said, there are other joys in your life besides the trumpet. So um, tell us a little bit about your life as a dad or like what maybe even just a day in the life beyond the intensives right now. Like, you know, what are some things you enjoy doing with your family or, you know, I see you have a dartboard behind you. Are you good (laughs) at darts? Like, tell us a little bit about kind of the other side of you, the the person side. Um, yeah, I love my family. Uh, my wife, Stephanie, she's incredible. We met at Round Top uh, Summer Music Festival many years ago. She's an oboist. And um, she actually designed my website. And um, people have liked it so much that they've been asking her if they'll she'll design their websites. And so it's like become this thing for her to reach out and help because she, you know, it's these musicians who lost all their gigs and they're like, what do I do? I need a website, but I want it to look good. And so she wants to just like be able to help these musicians. Nice. And so she's an awesome person. <laughs> and um, um, just so wise. Um, and um, I've got two daughters, Eleanor and Amelia. Um, How old are they? They're, well, my, my Eleanor just turned eight um, two days ago. And she's awesome. She all she wanted for her birthday was a typewriter. <laughs> wow, isn't that so cool? <laughs> yeah, it's also like weirdly a very kid thing to ask for, even yeah. though it's not a well, kid thing. You know, she has this American Girl doll, um, and the American Girl series is is great. There are these different dolls, and they're based on um, you know uh, uh, characters who would have been from a specific historical periods. And so Kit is her doll and Kit is from uh, the Great Depression. And um, Kit had a typewriter um, and Kit lived in Cincinnati. And, you know, there's just all these cool things that we get to learn about. Um, and so for her birthday party, she wanted to have like a mystery birthday party. And and so we all dressed in costume and um, played out this mystery and, um, you know, solved clues all day long and did like spy and detective stuff. So that's like a day in, in the life of the Wilkinsons uh, at a birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and then Amelia is five and, um, they're, you know, they keep us on our toes and right now we're spending more time with them than we, you know, ever have because they are at home with us all day, every day. And, um, uh, so we're, we're learning things about them, you know, Mm -hmm. like we are a part of their education. Um, and that's really been amazing. Yeah, I think to the untrained eye, what you just said, people will be like, oh, that must be so amazing to be around your kids all the time. But to me, as a parent, I understand that that, for us, that introduced uh, a number of difficulties that we just did not anticipate 
of what that was like. How has it been managing everyone being in the same space? Like, has your life changed? Has your approach of like, like for me, I've had to just change as like a father. I've just become different in what it is. And we've asked them to have more responsibilities. They're old enough to do that now. Like things changed a little bit. Did that happen for you at all? Or were you able to sort of settle in a little with like a little bit more ease? Oh, it was, a, I mean, <laughs> transformation of, of like what, what we had to do at home. And, um, you know, our kids, especially um, Eleanor, you know, she really needs a routine. And so we've had to be really clear on just the, the schedule of the day and uh, try to stick to that. Um, and I think that's been good for the whole family, just to know what to expect. Um, and, and interestingly, like to expect more things of them, like you said, like, you know, we, they like having jobs and so they can help with the house cleaning chores and with weeding outside because they want to participate in those things. Uh, whereas normally that might be something that we just do while they're at school or, you know, and they don't really see us doing them. And so they get to like have a bigger role in, um, domestic life, you know, and, and, and part of that's the housework. And, and then of course we're taking a bigger role in, their schoolwork. Yeah, and yeah. Um, once school ended, which was virtual, you know, we realized, you know, we have a pretty good thing going here. Like this is keeping us on schedule. It's good for the girls. It's good for us. Let's just keep it going. And so we're like, yeah, we're on summer break. And so some days we are, you know, we let it go. We're relaxed. Um, but we, we basically keep like a, you know, morning all the way to lunch kind of school ish schedule. And, um, that allows me to get some uh, some playing done, some work done, um, teaching, whatever. And then, you know, maybe we spend the afternoon outside and uh, run around. Um, and then in the evenings, I'm back to teaching. And with this book and with all these projects, I've been up to like two in the morning every single night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was assuming something's got to give. It's It's an interesting thing to be to produce content, to hone your craft and all that kind of stuff if you're a single person. But right. to add a family and being a father, being responsible, generally speaking, not the most, but, you know, like you're the the father, right? Like, you got to be there. <laughs> right. It's right. It becomes significantly like scheduling, I've found. And like you said, consistency of scheduling is like a lifesaver, basically. Right. Right. Everybody knows what to expect. And then we just communicate about what we need, you know. And so we check in with each other all the time. And... Um, I mean, I was raised <laughs> by my mom in the South to just say, like, what can I do to help mm. constantly, you know? And so that's sort of my just general attitude is like, if I'm not actively working or practicing, uh, or even if I'm about to, and it's just like, I've got to go downstairs and do this thing. I've got, you know, the podcast is on the schedule, you know, it's in 20 minutes. What can I do to help before I go down? Yeah, you know, yeah. like that's sort of the the general attitude. And so I think that helps keep us... Oh, as balanced as we can be, and then we realize when the scales are tipped uh, in one direction that that we try to try to make up for it or at least acknowledge that. So, this is where close, not necessarily where it's going to end, but I think this would be a great place to sort of hear you and then possibly bring it to a close. How do you care for yourself then? Because it's either trumpet player Micah or it's I am a teacher Micah or it's I am a dad or I am a husband. Where does I fill myself, Micah, so I can fill all of those roles? 
the way people need me to. Uh, where does that come in and what does that look like for you to be able to fill yourself back up and get what you need? Um, I'm a driven person. And so I think sometimes um, being able to um, feel like I have a goal that I'm working towards is a need that I'm, I'm fulfilling already. Um, and so interestingly, like when the, when the pandemic started and everything was canceled and I mean, I didn't even have a computer, uh, to like teach on, you know, I, it wasn't like I could just jump to online activity. I had nothing. And I, I, w that was pretty low. I didn't, you know, and, and while, you know, it was like everyone was grappling with it and there was a lot of grief communally. And so that makes, that makes sense. Um, it was only when I started to just like, um, take steps toward, um, reaching out and producing material that I started to feel, um, healthier mm. actually. Um, and that might just sound like a workaholic. It probably just comes across that way. Um, but um, I think there was some sort of core need that was met by by me just feeling like I was doing um, things to help and things that mattered to me. Um, and um, I think balance comes in really being present in whatever activities we're doing at the time. And so like those days where I'm like constantly thinking about a project that I'm doing. And so I'm not really present with my kids. Um, I am not in balance, but then if I'm able to take a moment and take a deep breath, when I shift from sort of work to dad, to husband, to self, where like, I'm going to go for a jog now, but I'm not just going to like think about work the whole time. Um, but I'm really just going to be present with the flow of the run. Um, then, uh, you know, I think then I'm going to feel like I'm in balance and, and I'm taking care of myself. Yeah, that's, I think it's, I'm learning that it's much more important to even just think about what that could mean, let alone actually finding ways to follow through uh, when you're high functioning and you have a lot of different things that you have to serve. I, I've never, I haven't been this way for most of my life. Most of my life, you know, I, I remember one particular day I woke up at like nine and I felt kind of sick and under the weather. So I watched all of season one of Parks and Rec. And then I watched all of season two of this show called Scream. And so that was like, 14 hours of watching Netflix, like the day, like it was one of those days where it was day outside when I got, when I was on the couch and when I got up, it was nighttime, you know, and that used to be something I could do. And it seemed so unfathomable to me, but the, the trade-off was I didn't ever have to think about what am I getting for me? I'm like watching Netflix all day, you know? So the trade-off is now because I have so many different hats I got to wear. Uh, it's very important to be thinking about yes. the in presence. Like you said, presence is unbelievably important because then you're just not actually doing that thing that you're supposed to be doing right in that moment. Right. So I appreciate right. you sharing. That was, that's, it's great advice. And hopefully, hopefully we're all able to sort of 
take from it and um, really think about how it might affect us. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's like in the, um, have you read Toughness Training for Sports? I have not. It's a great book. And one of the things that they talk about there is um, making waves of stress and recovery Mm -hmm. in training. And so you have to um, not just amp up your stress um, when you're training, like all the exposure to stress. Yes, you need to be able to handle that and and like uh, continue to expose yourself to more and more forms of stress. But you need an equal amount of healthy recovery um, for all of that. And so I, I think that's like this idea of presence that like, if, if on a walk in, in nature, I can be completely present and like notice the birds and the trees and like my breath and just like get lost in that, then I'm going to recover much more deeply, um, than if I go for a walk, quote unquote, but, you know, have my phone out the whole time and, you know, that I never really recovered. And I think we've found, unfortunately, all kinds of ways with technology to think that we're relaxing and recovering, but we're actually not recovering at all. Yeah. And sleep is certainly the best way to recover, right? I find that to be (laughs) one of the, I mean, you're describing staying up until two. I fool myself into thinking, well, if I just lay down at 10 or 1030, it's fine. But my brain does not slow down until like midnight, you know? Yeah. And it's a, that's a struggle for me is, is like finding ways to just like leave my work and not think about what I'm going to do tomorrow. You know, like my brain right. does not stop working like that. So it's a, even in recovery like that, it's, it's just a struggle for me to balance it. So I think it's worth the fight, but it's not easy to, to manage. I think sometimes it's, yeah, it's a lifelong, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you, you learn how to, re- you learn how to recover, you learn how to relax and you learn it through all kinds of different things. I mean, I've done acupuncture, massage, you know, hypnotherapy, uh, sensory deprivation tanks, you know, you, you name it. Like, <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time. It's really great to connect. Um, it, it, I agree. Thanks for doing this, Ryan. Yeah. Um, you had described earlier that your website is a good place for people to not only sign up for uh, the fundamentals, uh, I guess, seminar or intensive, however you want to describe it. But uh, also, I assume if they just want to get in contact with you in general, that would that be the place to go? Absolutely. MichaelWilkinson.com. Find me, you know, hit connect. Um, that's, that's what I'm all about. Connect and, and, you know, see what we can do. And then I, you said you were on Instagram as well. Can people, should people follow you there if they want to kind of check out what you're up to as well? Yeah, Micah Trumpet, I think, is my <laughs> name. <laughs> I'll, link, I'll link all this. Don't worry about okay. it. Um, uh, yeah, so that's awesome. I encourage you, if you were, if Micah said anything in this interview that you especially connected with, it sounds like he would like to connect with you. So um, I imagine he would want you to reach out. So feel free to do that. If you would like to get in touch with me for any reason, you could do that at that'snotspit.com. There's a, a, a contact me page at that's not spit on facebook and instagram um if you enjoyed this episode you learned something if you hated every part of it that's okay too if you just want to leave a rating and a review on itunes so we can hear from you that'd be awesome and don't forget to share it on social media if you enjoyed it so other people can find it as well I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Remember, 
stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.